as soon as I open it, roaches. To where when I walk in the house, <laughs> did you scream? Hold, <laughs> I don't know my life. Brother. Welcome back to Econics Talks, guys. When I pop up. Everybody gonna be like, man, overnight success. Lifestyle topics, entrepreneurship, and investing. Are you serious about this? Because if you are, then I'm willing to back the business. We want to inform you, educate you, and empower you so that you can maximize your life. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join our Econics Network on Slack. We created Econics to bring together the people most important to us in a way that's focused, valuable, and most importantly, all our own. This private group is for serious entrepreneurs that want to connect with other like-minded people. You're going to get exclusive content. You're going to meet people who share your interest and want to do the same things as you and talk about our entrepreneurial journeys and experiences. So to find out more information, the link is in the show notes, and I look forward to seeing you inside. Now, let's go ahead and start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Econics Talks. Today, I have a guest. His name is Ben Walker. Um, he's a fraternity brother of mine. So shout out to the alphas out there that are listening to this podcast. Um, just to give you a quick introduction of Ben. So he's the founder of Buyer's Point, and he started this company out with only $50, and he's built it into a seven-figure business. Um, he's been in business for 10 years. He's from Dallas, Texas, and he went to Texas Tech, and he got his master's from Oklahoma State. Um, ben, did I do you justice? Did I, did, did I do you justice? Did I hype you up? I think so, Ben. I feel pretty good about this. That was a good intro. <laughs> All right, man. So first question on the board, man. First question. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background and, you know, your entrepreneurial background. Like, was this something that you just fell into? Was you, were you looking for an opportunity somewhere? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how that came about. Yeah, no, man, no problem. And I think it's really important to kind of to tell the backstory because uh, it kind of lays the foundation of how we got here today. I've got a good friend that always says, this is like day 10,000 of my overnight success story. And so um, I'm the same way. I've been in business for 10 years. I started, so I started 10 years ago. I found the company right out of college because, like a lot of people, when I graduated college, I had a decent job, but it was not enough to pay my bills and pay off my student loans. So I had to figure way, out a way to do both. So I started the company uh, with $50. It took me three months. I was pretty broke after college. It took me three months to save that $50. And I actually started when I was selling cell phones. So I had a friend that had an iPhone. I bought Wait, this pause, iPhone pause, from her. Pause. Go ahead. It took you three months to save $50? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three That's months. Crazy. So, That's Yeah, so literally I was. Struggle. Yeah, the real struggle. So w when people say, like, I, literally I say, I. There is no I can't. Like, if you give me something, I will figure out the solution. Um, so literally, saved, I, pay, I saved $15 a month for the first two months, and that third month I splurged and saved 20 um, <laughs> But, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I bought this, this cell phone for my friend, and I ended up selling it online. I bought it for 50 sold it for 150 and it only took about an hour to sell. And so, like, a light bulb went off, and I was like, wait a minute. I just made a hundred bucks in an hour. Like, what? What's going on here? And so, what I ended up doing is I looked on Craigslist and I started buying cell phones off Craigslist and flipping them on eBay and Amazon. 
Uh, I got to the point where I was doing roughly anywhere between 40 to 80 phones a week. Um, then I realized I, was, I had more demand than supply because I couldn't get enough phones. So then I pivoted to accessories. And so then the same thing happened. I um, ended up doing accessories for a while, and then I was, had more um, demand once again to supply. And so then one day I came across this liquidation lot, and it was for a pallet of wall plates. And when I say wall plates, I mean literally like the plastic plates you have in your house. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. And so I, I just said, well, let's test the waters. So I bought them, and they sold instantly. And I was like, who out here is buying wall plates? It was a complete mind thing for me. And so uh ended up being a company called GE. You guys know them, a worldwide brand. So I reached out to GE. Uh, there was a, a contact on who to, how to pay. And I call them up, and I say, can you guys explain to me, like, what's going on here? And they tell me, oh, yeah, so we sell in the Home Depot's on Lowe's. But what happens is those stores want us to um, – there has to be enough volume for the uh, to take up a shelf space. So we have these products that sell but not enough volume to, sit, to stay on the shelf. So they're sitting in our warehouse. And so we, uh, we call them obsolete, and it's about $2 million worth of inventory in our warehouse. And so I tell them, I say, how about this, man? How about – you send me the list every quarter. I, I use that list, and I sell what I can sell every single quarter. You guys are happy because you're cleaning up your balance sheet, and the uh, big box stores are happy because I'm not competing against them because they're not selling stuff on the stores anyways. They say deal. And so for two years, I'm one of the only uh, liquidators that GE uses to liquidate their obsolete products. Um, two years later after that, I start thinking to myself, I'm looking on the back of all these boxes, and I see that they all say made in China. And I'm like, well, if they get it made in China, maybe I can do this. And so I do some research, do a bunch of research, and I realize it's actually not that difficult. A lot of these same companies, not just GE, are all using the same factories, and they're just branding the materials, which you call white labeling. And so I go out and I find a team that can do it for me, pay them basically some one-time fees, and Virus Point is born. And since that day forward, we have been in the game of, of basically manufacturing and selling wall plates, uh, any kind of audio-video cabling, patch panels, and just recently we pivoted to PPE, and we now have a separate business called Tampa Bay Mask. And that's the backstory. That's dope, man. So let me let me ask a question about white labeling, right? So a lot of people really don't understand white labeling and how that goes. Can you break down that process? Because there are a lot of people who want to start a business, um, but they have the they don't have the, the furthest clue about, you know, white labeling or Alibaba or that kind of thing. Can you break that down? Yeah, and so it's it's weird. It's easier than you think to do it, but it's also if you don't do it correctly very easily to make a lot of mistakes that will make you lose a lot of money and put you out of business. So in essence, white labeling is nothing more than finding a, a product that is already existing product that is out there that is generic, putting your brand on it, and then marketing that product as your brand. Um, every major company you can think of, for the most part, is doing that today. Uh, a lot of these companies that you think might have proprietary products, they're more than likely not. They're just a generic factory doing it, and they just have a very strong uh, branding marketing team. So the way that process worked for me was I found what's called a sourcing agent. I went, to, I used a website called Upwork.com, made a posting and said, I'm looking for this product, interviewed a bunch of people that are called sourcing agents to figure out, um, to find the products for me. They go out into the market, 
They uh, provide, they do all the legwork for me, and they come back to me and they say, hey, here are three factories I think you should try to work with. I get to samples from all three factories. I interview all three factories. I see who I feel most comfortable working with, and then I start a relationship with them small. One of the caveats you want to do with this is you want to make sure it's a factory that you that you guys can build a relationship with. In China, relationships is very important. But the bigger issue, bigger issue is when it comes to white labeling and starting importing is there's two areas you want to make sure don't fail. You want to make sure the product is what it says it is, and then you also want to have inspections done, independent inspections done in China before that stuff ships. So that way, because of the language barrier, you want to make sure there's not some kind of misunderstanding and you get the product and it's not what you think it is. On the other side of that is, oh. you all, go ahead. So, because now you got my, I got so many questions. Okay, so first off, <laughs> yeah. so you're talking about, because this is actually something that I've personally been interested in, so I'm actually learning. Um, so you, obviously I've heard of Upwork, so you go to a sourcing agent. And from there, um, so how do you determine how, so you said do like checks. How do you do that? How do you go about doing a check on in China when you're not physically there? Yeah, so they have. There's a whole industry in there of third-party inspection companies, and it, it is a, a norm there. So you can uh, there's Facebook groups that you can look them up, or you can just literally Google inspection companies in China. You can also hire inspection companies on Upwork to do it. Like you're a sourcing agent. If you ask that person that found the factories, if they know. Uh, company, they themselves might do it. For years, our sourcing agent did our inspections, or they can recommend an actual company that does this. And so there's literally a, a whole industry out there that does this. They're the full-time job. And so what they do is they come in, they have these check sheets, and then you can either tell them if you want something specifically done, or you can say, hey, just, just run your process, and they'll come back with these 20 to 100-page reports on your product of all the tests they did on them. So what if you want, because, you know, when you're doing white labeling, a lot of times you lose the um, the ability to customize your product, uh, you know, like you probably really want to. So how would you, or is it even possible to get something super customized? Oh, absolutely. And so um, white labeling is technically only white labeling if you take an existing product. But if you establish a relationship with the factory, like for us at this point in time, um, some of our core products or some of our uh, first initial products are pure white label, but now we, we customize our products. And so it's not difficult at all. These factories, they already have the machines to mold. Uh, they have engineers. They have the CAD designers. Um, you can discuss with them any kind of customizations you need, and they'll be able to – and they'll be very clear, either yes or no, they can work with you or not. So uh, that's another question. Mm-hmm. How – how um. How does that change the price point when you're looking at your profit margins as far as customization? Obviously, if it's something that's crazy, it's going to be co- it's going to cost you know more. But does that really bite into your profit margin when you're looking at the actual um, breakdown of everything when it comes to customization? Well, it depends. So if it's a, if it's customization and it's a new product that's new to the market, well, then you can now charge a premium because it's new to the market. But it's customization that is uh, of a, a standard commoditized product, well, then, yeah, that's going to lower your margin. But if you're talking about something simply like putting your logo on there or putting some words on a product, that typically is standard. And so it might cost you only a couple cents extra to do it. Um, if you're going to try to change the actual form factor of the product, well, it does get more expensive, but then you could argue that you 
product that you can now sell at a premium because no one else has it. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Dang, that's so dope. So now that you've learned, well, how long did it take you to really get that process down, the white labeling process? Or what were the what were some of your your drawbacks? You know, your fails, your when you got into the you know the the nitty gritty of it. What what were some of that? What did it, what did that look like? Man, we uh, the I would say the the things that we failed on uh, were probably dispelled products. Not necessarily because we, we were very thorough. We asked a lot of questions. We told people up front. We were like, look, we are new to this. And so that goes back to hiring honest people. And so a lot of the times uh, when we talked to our third-party inspections company or we talked to the third-party sourcing agent, we were clear to them that we're new to this. And so they told us what to look out for. And so because we listened to those people, uh, very rarely do we run into actual issues with the products um, because we were able to avoid the issues up front and and were very clear up front. Um, Some of the issues that you could run into now, just simple business-wise, is Customs. You should definitely hire a customs broker to clear customs for you because there's the whole that's the whole world out there that if you're not an expert in, you can miss something. And there's no reason to to have your goods held up in the port. And and what I mean by that is just because your products leave China does not mean that they will be allowed into the United States. And so unless you know someone that can make sure that those products don't they fit all the criteria to come into the United States then you can be set, you can be stuck with your products at the port in the U.S. not allowed to come in. Um, another thing is, like most recently, we, we launched a new product. We launched some uh, patch panel couplers where you uh, the actual plug-in device that you put into patch panels, and then we actually added a, a, a punch-down tool on top of it. Our mistake was we got a little lazy, and we didn't test the, t- the punch-down machine with that coupler, and so we get them all here in the United States, the actual punch down tool does not work with the coupler. <laughs> and so oh, no. that's no fault of the battery. That's our that's the fault of us because we so didn't So how did you pivot to not lose that product? Or did you did you scrap it or did you just rebrand it? How did you, you know, make that adjustment to make sure you didn't lose that Yep. Product? So what we did was uh we just we for us to recoup, recoup the investment, we just put them to the side. We we now sell them separately to themselves and then uh let the installers kind of know what the product is so they they can pick it if they want it, and then we went back to the well and said, okay, let's get the right tool for our product, and that's what you do. Gotcha, gotcha. That's smart. So, so like that, if you're lucky, you can liquidate them. If you're not lucky, then you just eat the cost. Gotcha. So it seems like it's a lot that goes into that because I, I don't know if most people understand the whole um, customs process, but that's when, um, and I'm explaining this just for just for the people who are listening, yeah who may not be familiar with how that goes. And I'm not an expert by any means, but I have a general understanding of how it works. But when you when you buy something from a foreign country and you get it shipped in, that's when tariffs and, and that's when the that's when, you know, the presidency and the, the the federal government, that's when they come into play because they determine how much um goods are taxed when they're brought into the country, um, from other countries. So that can also, you know, bite down into your profit margin as well. Um, so my question to you, Ben, is when you were um, first starting out, how did you navigate the customs process or, you know, how long did it take you to realize, oh, I need a customs broker, and how has that helped you? I know you, when it, I know you explained it a little bit earlier, but I want you to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that subject. Yeah, I would say day one. So um, when I did, when I was, before I started making my first purchase, I did 
I mean, I can't even explain how many hours of research I did. And so I learned through that research process that I need to hire someone. A lot of people decide to go out their own. I was like, it's not worth it. And so from day one, I uh, hired a, bro a customs broker. And so what I did was, to be fair, I had three different options. I would either have my sourcing agent act on my behalf as a broker to clear customs. I would have either had or I had the factory that I was buying from act on my behalf to clear customs, or I would use a, a customs broker just depending on the product and the price and how much risk I wanted to take. Um, and depending on the product uh, specificity when it comes to the United States, if it's something that's um, that's electric that uses power, well, I don't want to rely on the the knowledge of another country because they might know the, all the intricacies of the U.S. So I hire a U.S. customs broker that would know that to clear those products. Um, but from, so I would say from day one, I was using customs brokers. Wow. So, and obviously you've been in business for ten years. This process, the white labeling process, is really interesting to me as a whole because so many people they try to figure out, okay, well, how do I, how am I able to start a business or do a clothing line and put my label on clothing, on clothing or whatever you want to do, and you know, get it to a point where you can sell it as your own. And you know, I wish more people understood the white labeling process, or just in general, you know, that that it's an option for them. But a lot of people don't even know. Um, I remember I learned about this this process, you know, a couple of years ago. And the reason why I'm, I'm really digging deep into this this topic is because it's such a big opportunity for a lot of people who want to start businesses but have no clue how to get product, where to go get product, and looking at how much it costs in the U.S. to manufacture and, you know, print things or get things built and how expensive it is. So, you know, they talk about places like Apple or companies like Apple having uh, factories in, in, you know, different countries. Well, that's because it's cheaper to, to, to have that. So you, I definitely understand why people go foreign when they're trying to get products. And that's, that's why you hear a lot of people in government talking about bringing jobs back to America. Um, it's because we have outsourced so many of our jobs because it's just too expensive here. Um, and so as, as, you know, as a business owner, how do you, oh, how do you feel about how things have changed over the years? And what, what are some of those highs and lows that you've had to see? Because you've been in business for 10 years, which means you, you've seen the, um, you were, you were here for the, uh, the, I want to say the great depression. Huh. You yeah, know what I'm talking about, the market crash, the stock market crash. I mean, yeah. So um, I guess I'll answer it two ways. So one, when it comes to the jobs in America, I think I need to touch on that, and I'll also talk about how to survive the recession. The first part is um, talking about the the jobs or in America. So to be clear, I very much want to manufacture in the United States. When I first started looking to manufacture, I looked in the United States, and I couldn't get any manufacturers in the United States to even call me back. Um, they didn't. They didn't take me serious. Um, and then the ones I did call find out, um, they were rude. They, they did not treat me what I thought was respectful when I'm trying to offer them money. Uh, and so I went to over, and then, and then I, then I had a hard time finding people that can do it period. So even once I did get called back, they couldn't manufacture the goods. They had no knowledge of how to manufacture them. And so there was no manufacturing in the United States. And so when I went to China, it was the exact opposite. They would bend over backwards to make sure I was happy. They would treat me 
like I thought a customer should be treated when someone's giving you money. Um, I have gone since that time period in this last 10 years. I have tried to find manufacturing in the United States twice, most recently with the Trump tariffs. There is not manufacturing in the United States that can that could produce the goods that I want to produce. We hired, we spent almost tens of thousands of dollars on consultants to find us a manufacturer in the United States, and the best they can come back with was maybe the Mexico, maybe Canada. Wow. We were in the United States often, and this was two years ago. So, um, wow. yes, there should be manufacturing in the United States. I absolutely think there will be, and if, and if anyone hears this and they can offer a solution for me, I would love to talk to you. I would love nothing more to the manufacturer here in this country. So then wow. that's one piece. The other piece was talking about the recession. So I graduated in December '08. We all know what that time period was like. Um, I was in the middle of the recession, but I started my business in the middle of the recession, and it thrived and grew in the middle of the recession. And so I make that point to say that just because it's a low in the market does not mean you cannot be successful. You can be successful. You just have to make sure that you're offering the market a product that they need at that time. If I was selling cars at that time, I would be in trouble. But I wasn't. I was selling a, a product the market still needed. And so a way to navigate the rough waters is to make sure that you're always listening to the market, not yourself, because the market will tell you what they need at the time. So, and I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that as well. Bro, this is probably one of my favorite interviews. I'm just, I'm just keeping 100 with you, dog. <laughs> um, it, you have so much knowledge, man. You have so much knowledge about just business in general. And, you know, when you talk to people, you can tell people who've been in business and people who are trying to do business. Um, so I definitely want to commend you for, for the knowledge that you're bringing there. I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, but uh, I want to ask you this. So I know the name of your company is Virus Point, and, and I think one of the coolest things about that is it allows you to pivot wherever you want to in the market. <laughs> so when you look at branding, right, so – and this is for the listeners. Whenever you look at branding, um, you look at Apple. Well, guess what? Apple sells phones and a bunch of other things. When you look at um, somebody like uh, Godiva Chocolate, they sell chocolate. So Apple has, it has no correlation with, with a cell phone. So let's say, God forbid, they wanted to pivot and sell something else. They could. Um, so when you look at you know, your brand, you can literally pivot anywhere you want to and still have relevant, your brand is still relevant to that market, even if you're new to that market, because you didn't pigeonhole yourself based on how you branded yourself. I really, really like how you did that. Um, was that something that you saw back then or something that kind of just happened by just happenstance? Yeah, so it was, I don't want to give myself too credit, too much credit. I definitely thought about that. But just slightly, I, I thought buyer's point just because I knew I wanted to, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to sell. I knew I wanted to sell multiple things. I wanted to be flexible. But I don't think I was thinking at this really philosophical level of of you can brand anything and sell anything. It was more on the lines of, like, what's flexible at the time. And I also want to give a shout-out to the guy that helped me with this, Shaheen. Um, we were both in grad school at the same time when I was coming up with the name. And so a lot of people ask me, what does buyer's point mean? So you got to think back 10 years ago before when Amazon was just getting started, people did not feel safe selling online. And so if you look at our logo, it's a circle and an arrow, and the name is Buyer's Point. And so what it means is when you go online, there is a um, when you're looking for a product, there's a point in which you're looking to buy. 
And so what you typically do is you say, is this the product that I'm looking for? Is the company reputable? Does it have good reviews? And if it checks all those boxes off, typically there's a point in which you can decide I want to buy. And so buyer's point wants to be that point for you. And that's the idea of the company name. I love that. And so I actually just talked about this in a post. Um, when you when people are doing their logos and they're doing their marketing and stuff, don't y'all don't go on Fiverr and just and throw some 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 bullshit together like like it's just supposed to work. You know, you invest into your into your product, invest invest into your brand. Um, even if you ask me about my Iconics logo, there's a meaning behind the scent sign. There's a meaning behind. Um, the icon above the word iconic. There's a meaning behind that. That means something to me, and that means something to the brand itself. So, you know, just like Ben was talking about, like there's meaning behind Buyer's Point and the logo that, that they have. So when you're looking at your branding, your marketing, understand that paying $5, now look, don't get me wrong here. If you don't have the money, you don't have the money. I get it. But if you have the money to invest, Trust me, you will thank yourself later, and you can always rebrand at another point. Have you ever thought about about rebranding? Oh yeah, and that's an excellent point. So I I will say I I agree like fifty percent, and so I definitely think that when it comes to the name, one tip I would say is if I can go back, I would make it one word, not two, just because it helps with algorithms finding your product. Uh, that space causes a problem in the algorithms. I would say stick with one word. But um, also, I do agree that you should have some kind of meaning behind your brand, and you should probably spend a little bit of money. But I would say not spend much money at all. I would say your best bang for your buck is going to be get sales. Because at the, at the end of the day, when you're first starting out, no one really cares what the company name is. No one cares what your brand is. They just care if the product's quality. And so if you have a quality product, that's how you build a brand, not the other way around. Um, that's by making sales. And another thing is when you right. talk about changing the brand, I wish I could show you the files. The, our brand that we've had now, or this look we have now, has only been around for about three or four years. We have gone through probably four or five iterations of our logo, and the first one is the $5 logo that I look back and laugh at it because it looks so bad. <laughs> but at the time, it was like, <laughs> let's just get something out there to put on the product because um, we want to make sales. And so, yes, have a brand. Yes, have something. But the day one, the biggest the most important priority should be to get sales because the logo changes over time. If you ask anybody, you go look at Apple, the logo changes over time. Hell, it changed, what, three years ago, again. Yeah, it just, it just changed, right. It just changed. And they do subtle changes. They don't do major changes. They do subtle changes. You very rarely see them do a, a major branding change, but they do change their, their logo every every couple of years, maybe every five to seven years. But that happens. That happens. And so – you know, just to piggyback off of what you just said, like it's okay if you don't have the money to invest. I definitely think that you should, you know, put some time into the the thought behind your branding and your and your um your logo. But at the end of the day, like you said, it's about the quality product because anybody can have a, a great website, anybody can have um a great logo and, and a great presentation. But if you aren't producing and and providing a product for that customer. At the end of the day, they're not going to want to do business with you again. So it's all about retention and expansion. So yep. I appreciate you you dropping that knowledge, man. Um, which is it's, it's funny to me how you you say, "Hey, uh, I've rebranded. I've done this. I've done that." So you look at your first logo and you're like, "Dang, I was trash." So even for <laughs> me, man, when I um when I first started Econics, 
um, I was, I was, you know, I create a lot of content on, and I post a lot of, a lot of things on Instagram, right? It's just, just you know, to help, help stuff. And when you look at when I first started, and a lot of those posts are now gone, but I used to create all of my content on Photoshop, which was extremely time-consuming, and it looked awful. And but it was the best I could do at that time. I still got what I wanted to do done. But then you find products like Canva. You you get better at Photoshop. You find quicker ways to create nicer content and things that relate well to your audience. So over time, I've gotten better. Now people people are like, well, Josh, how did you make this content? Or who did you hire to do your content? I'm like, I did it myself. Mm-hmm. It's, then that, that's just my expertise. That That's my expertise for, you know, my personal brand. So I enjoy that part of the business. Um, which leads me to another question. What – What's everybody has parts of their business that they hate. What's what are some of those for you? Oh man, that's tough. Um, that I hate, man. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. There's anything I hate because man, or you I, just I, don't look I, forward to. Uh, probably, I don't know, man. Maybe doing the inventory counts, or maybe making the 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 hands on like doing the building the bundles or maybe doing the accounting. Um at at this point I do not like doing the uh the day to day operations because I would like to focus more on the strategy and growing the business. But I want to caveat that by saying I don't mind doing the day to day stuff. Literally as we talked before I got on this phone call, I was unloading a truck right before this interview. So I don't mind doing it. I just prefer um investing my time and growing the business at at this point. So let me ask you this as a follow-up to that that statement. Um, what what does it look like when you're in the day-to-day versus being the person that's making the decisions on strategy? Because at first when you start, you're making both of those decisions. But now that you've been in business for so long, now you can kind of take a step back and focus on higher-level thinking and strategy and growth. So how does that look, and how, how have you been able to, to make that that change yeah, I think it's uh, purposeful hiring and purposeful um, process imp- implementation. And so what I mean by that is from day one, uh, actually not from day one, um, there was a point that came in time when I realized I could not do everything myself. And it was when we got to about 30 packages a day, I realized that something had to change. It was driving myself tiresome trying to run the business. And so from that day, I decided that I'm going to delegate everything I possibly can delegate. If I could delegate breathing, I would delegate it. So yeah. um, what that looks like now is I, I have an operations manager who her entire job is to make sure the day-to-day stuff works just fine. I have a warehouse manager who her entire job is to make sure that the products go out the door every single day. We automate on the software side. We automate everything. We have an inventory management system that's completely automated. We have multiple warehouses across the North America that are fully automated to actually get our product to the customers. Our accounting software, we have an accountant that does it, and we have accounting software we use. Our invoicing system, um, email, everything you can think of that can be automated. As soon as we have the capital to allocate to make that automated, we automate it. And so what that looks like is we have an extremely lean um, overhead because of it. So right now we only have um, three full-time staff and a couple part-time people, but we're able to churn out on average, every single day, around 250 um, orders every single day. 
Um, and you're not able to do that unless you have processes in place that are completely automated. And so what that allows me to do is every day I walk in, I have a little checklist of things to get done, but it allows me to think about what's our one-year plan and what can I do to today to get us closer to that one-year plan. So it allows me to think about those things to move the needle instead of worrying about um, basically getting patches out the door. That makes sense. That's crazy. When you So now that you, you, you know, we we transitioned over to another period where we were in a pandemic, right? So how has that affected your business? Have you leveraged that? Have you have you made adjustments? How has that how has it affected affected your day to day? Oh yeah, we we made a, a massive pivot. So massive, massive pivot that quite frankly saved the company. I'll be completely transparent asked, about I it. Asked I asked you I asked you that question on purpose because <laughs> that is so important for people to hear. You you touched on it earlier, but I definitely want to get this part out to the listeners. Yeah, so when the uh Trump tariffs went into place, the um those tariffs crippling to our business. There was a couple articles in the in the Tampa Times about it, how it literally almost put us out of business. Um, then the pandemic happened right on top of that, and uh, we were about 15 days away from having to lay off our entire staff. We wow. were, I would say, lucky but also prepared because here's what happened. In January, our um, manufacturer that we're working for in years is in China. She reached out to us and said, hey, um, there's a virus. It's pretty bad. It's spreading. Um, we think it's going to come to the United States, and we think it's going to be really bad. Uh, not many people are talking about it, but we're seeing things here that look really bad. And she said, do you guys need any PPE supplies because we want to p- make sure you're safe? We said, no, I think we're okay. A couple weeks later, she comes reaches out to us and says, hey, look, now it's getting bad, and just trust me, not only do I need you guys to get PPE so you're safe, but she's like, I think you should buy a lot of PPE because I think you're going to need it there in the States. And we said, well, I don't know. But we trusted her, and she said, listen, she said that. Do you trust us? We said, yes. She goes, trust us that you're going to need it. And so we ended up buying, I want to say, the first round, about 150,000 masks. It was a, At the time, it seemed outrageous. We get it in here to states around the end of February. And as you guys know, that's, that's the beginning. The time that period. was the very beginning. It was the very beginning. Quite frankly, the shit hit the fan about a week mm-hmm. later. And no one anywhere can find PPE supplies. We sold out that stuff within an hour of it. So it touches our door within an hour of it touching our warehouse. It's out the door the same day. We end up, um, but we're, we, we were cognizant of what's going on. So we sold it to the state of Florida first. Then we sold it to hospice care facilities. Then we started going to school districts and kind of trickling down to, to retail from there. But because of that relationship with our manufacturer and our trust that we built over the years, we were able to immediately pivot. And so when she told us this, um, and we were preparing for it, before anybody's even talking about it in the U.S., we're preparing for it. Over the weekend on a Saturday, I reached out to my um, my graphic designer, and I said, hey, look, we need something quick. I don't know how serious it's going to get, but can we put something together and put a process in the place and put a website in, in place? So literally over a weekend, we built out an entire process for PPE. We created another brand called Tampa Bay Mask, which I hope you guys have heard of. If not, please support us, com, because it supports employees. We built out the entire process over a weekend. We come in the door, so when the shit does hit the fan, we're full steam ready to go. And that's how we pivoted. And since then, that PPE business is now 60% of our company. And because we were able to deliver when no one else did deliver, we were able to pick up very large clients that are still with us today because not only were we able to pick them up, 
but we were we didn't price gouge like a lot of people were doing. We said, look, we want to be honest about this. And so when the market when they when their other people came back and said, hey, we'll start giving better pricing, they were like, no, we remember what you did to us, so we're gonna we're gonna stick with this guy. So right. that pivot and allowed now, us to grow. It, mm-hmm. you, you see how a lot of people. I mean, it was crazy, man. I think this dude went to almost went to jail or something like that because he tried to price gouge on hand sanitizer. He started to sell bottles for like $75, something crazy like that. He bought them all up on Amazon, and then he went to go resell them for a profit, but the government stepped in and was like, no, like you can't do this because obviously it's a pandemic. Um, and, you know, I'm an, I'm an Airbnb owner, so they were saying the same thing to us. Um, you can't price gouge. You can't do that just to make a profit because, man, that's, that's one of the things about – that's one of the beauties and one of the horrors of capitalism. You have people like yourself who you took advantage of the market. That's great. You saw a need and you filled that need. But then you have other people who are opportunistic and they do take advantage of the market, but they also take advantage of it so much that they put other people out, and, and mainly the clients and customers, not competitors. I understand a competitor, but the clients and customers, you're putting them at you're putting them out of business because they're trying to pay all of this money just to just to maintain it. They don't even have a choice. It's it's, it's crazy how how capitalism is such a is such a good and a good and bad thing on both sides. We like we like anything else, but I definitely wanted yeah. to to talk yeah. to you about that because I think that that was probably one of the smartest things that you probably could have done. And you touched on this, but you got that. You got all of that because of a relationship you built and the relationship that you cultivated over time. And it just, it just worked out because you just had somebody over in China who you've been working with tell you, like, hey, this is what's going on. Like, it's coming. It's definitely coming. You might want to be prepared. So you took a risk. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that is something that, you know, you had to, had to really think about. So who was at that round table? Who did you consult with? You know, who did you, obviously you didn't make this decision in a day. So how did that decision-making process go into making a, that sharp pivot to, to make sure you saved your company? Yeah. So I think that um, it was myself, my wife that I go to for advice. I think she's probably one of the smartest people I know and um, operations manager. And but to touch on it, 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 I haven't said this yet, but one of our core tenets of our of our company is risk taking. Like we we believe as a company that you have to take risks to grow, and so that's uh, a core principle of ours. Um, but I believe in it's actually strategic risk taking. Taking. So when we sat down to make that decision, we said, okay, I always say that the ten percent pie. So let's say we have ten thousand dollars, we only risk ten percent on any given project or product. So that way, if it fails, you can recuperate. Because if you risk 100%, you're out of business. And so when it came to make that decision, it still held the same. We said, okay, how much capital do we have to spend? Okay, let's invest 10% of that capital on this risk. And so it just happened that that risk gave us an outsized return. However, if it would have failed, we still would have been just fine. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I know we're, I know we're, um, we're winding down here. I, bro, I still have so many more questions, so we're definitely – I'm going to have to bring you on for a part two. But I want to get to the Econics 10, and I'll let you get back to, to saving the world. Um, so the Econics 10 is just 10 questions that I just want you to answer, not, not necessarily rapid fire, but we'll go ahead and jump right into it. So number one, um, what would you title this chapter in your life? 
What your child is chapter in your life? Um, man, I would say, uh, oh man, don't quit. Okay, that that probably be the best way to do it. Don't quit. I like that. That's a good poem too. <laughs> um, <laughs> number two. <laughs> Um, what superpower would you have? Consistency. You have to be consistent every single day to to make it in this world. Every you can't take a day off. So consistency. Yep, I like that. That is that's that's different. I like that. Um, number three, what would you invest in right now if money wasn't an issue? Invest in right now if money wasn't an issue, man. Life, <laughs> man. Live, yeah, life. Have fun. Enjoy it. Um, I don't work to make money. I make money to have a great time. And since I hit my mm-hmm. dollar amount I have in my head, I'm selling the business and I'm going away and I'm living life. So I would say if money was an issue, quit your job and go have fun. Yeah. See, he's smart, guys. He's, he want, so he's not so attached to his business that he's not he's not unwilling to sell it, you know. A lot of people do that. They'll scale a business, sell it, and do something else. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, number five, um, five dinner guests, dead or alive, who's at your table? Who, five dinner guests? Five um, dinner man, guests. that's tough. Dead or alive. I mean, Jeff Bezos is sure off one because of Amazon. Uh, James Baldwin, one of my favorite uh, activists. Yeah, I like James. Dead or alive. Um, trying to think of people that I look up to that I would like to just to pick their brains. Um, man, that's tough. I don't know if I've ever thought about that before. I mean, I, I would, I guess, <laughs> right now would be James Baldwin and uh, and Jeff Bezos. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of anybody else off the top of my head right now that I'd want to just meet with and pick their brain. Because especially with Twitter and like technology, you do get you have a lot of unfeathered access to people that you normally wouldn't have. So a lot of people that I do like, right. I can just, I can go see what they're thinking about right now on Twitter right now. So that's right. tough. That's true. So I'll just um, for number, now. okay, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> number six, your celebrity crush. Oh man, Zodana, man, oh my god, absolutely, Zoe, yes, absolutely. And I've my wife this many times. Huh? No, uh, Zoe Zodana. Yeah, from uh, from Avatar, from Mission Impossible. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know you're talking about. I know you're talking about. <laughs> that's yeah, she's she pretty fine. Um, <laughs> number seven, something that the average person wouldn't know about you. Average person wouldn't know about me. Um, man, I guess I would, uh, one, I believe in ghosts and that I am super paranoid. Like I'm probably like the most paranoid <laughs> person, you know, it's ridiculous. I'm always thinking about like, Hey man, I can, you could die from that. Don't do that. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Right. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a risk taker. It's, yeah, it's ridiculous. Like I said, it's ridiculous. You're right, because I'm not scared of much, but I'm also, like, cognizant of the reality. So Right. I think ghosts are real, too. I just call them spirits. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, exactly. Number eight, your biggest pet peeve. Oh, man. I've got to say, like, not seeking perfection. It drives me insane when people settle or they kind of just have to do a job. It just... It it breaks my soul when I see people not trying to reach for more or, or do better or or I guess I guess I would say 
uh, reach for the have the aspirations that I think they can do. When I see somebody that I think has the potential and they just don't want to do something, it just breaks my soul. Yeah, no, I feel that. Um, that means you're investing to people. That means you're investing to Absolutely. a lot of people. Number nine, your biggest fear. Is it ghosts? Biggest uh no, nah, my biggest fear. <laughs> man, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I have a biggest fear, man. There's not this like I said, there's very few things I'm actually afraid of. Um I guess the only the biggest fear I, I would ever have is to to not have control of something. Like if I were to drown, that'd be pretty scary to me. But um yeah. yeah, I don't know. There's very few things I'm actually afraid of. So I, like I don't that. I don't have an answer to that. Number ten, your most embarrassing moment. One of them. Oh shoot, one of them, boy. I'm in business, man. I got all kinds of embarrassing moments. Uh, let me think here. <laughs> most embarrassing. Should it be that time I went in for a kiss and got denied? Should it be? Uh, I don't know, man. Um, I think I think one of the funniest one. It will be a girl thing. One of the funniest things it was when I was at a club, and I thought I was pretty hot shit, man. I went to the club and there was a girl there, and I went to talk to her, and she just turned to me and she just goes, "No." <laughs> Until this day, I laughed so hard about that because I was like, that's hilarious. Um, so that might be pretty embarrassing. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm pretty pretty chill, pretty don't really care. So I'm sure yeah. I've done many things that are embarrassing to other people or even embarrassing to myself. I just don't dwell on them. So I, I don't know. Right. You let it go and move on. I like that. Yeah. Well, that that was our Econics 10. So, you know, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Um I definitely want you going to give you an opportunity to talk about your business one more time. Tell people where to find you. Tell people what you sell. Um, tell people how to get in touch with your business and to support whatever you got going on. Go ahead and tell the people that. Man, well, first, thank you very much for having this opportunity to be on this, this program. I, I greatly appreciate it. I love knowing you as a friend as a friend. Um, you can find out more about me at our core business, buyerspoint.com, and that's going to be for any of our AB or patch panel or networking supplies, and then our other second business, Tampa Bay Mask with the S at the end, um, for any of our PPE supplies, whether it's hand sanitizers, N95 masks that are very difficult to find right now, gloves, any kind of other mask you need, we've got what you need for us, for you at TampaBayMask.com. So, so, man, thank you again so much, and I appreciate you. And at the end of the day, man, we're going to have you back on to go deeper into some more of these topics. And that's it, guys. Have a good one. Peace.